Welcome back, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you will be listening to Episode 5 of Season 3, which features MBS Highway founder and CEO Barry Habib, who was recently named the 2020 winner of the Crystal Ball Award presented by Zillow and Pulsonomics. In the first half of this two-show episode, Habib discusses the coronavirus's impact on the U.S. housing market and explains how a global pandemic hurled the housing finance industry in an economic storm that has yet to pass. Habib also explains why the Federal Reserve's desire to lower mortgage rates isn't just damaging for mortgage servicers, but lenders who now fear losing the ability to hedge their risk. According to Habib, not only does the Federal Reserve need to temporarily slow MBS purchases to allow pipelines to clear, but they must more clearly communicate that mortgage rates and the Fed funds rate are not one and the same. But before we listen, Clayton will bring you word from our sponsors. Going into the third season of Housing News, we're thrilled to welcome our sponsors, ArchMI and Quicken Loans Mortgage Services. With interest rates at historical lows, refinances are booming. How do you win this business? It's simple, lower the MI premium for your borrower. The newest feature of Arch's innovative RateStar platform, the RateStar Refinance Retention Program, makes it possible. Eligible borrowers with loans already insured by ArchMI can refinance into new loans with a lower MI premium payment. Give your refi customers a better deal. If you'd like to learn more about how RateStar powers possibilities, visit archmi.com forward slash RateStar refi. And to learn more about Quicken Loans Mortgage Services, visit qlmortgageservices.com. Thank you for listening. And here's episode five of the Housing News Podcast. Hey, Housing News listeners, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire, and we are joined today with Barry Habib, the founder and CEO of MBS Highway. Barry, welcome to Housing News. So good to be with you, Clayton. Thanks for having me. We're, we're thrilled to have you. And for our audience's sake, uh, Barry has a, a deep background as a mortgage banking operator, strategist, and advisor. Barry was just named the top real estate forecaster by Zillow and Pulsonomics and has been presented with the Crystal Ball Award for the most accurate real estate forecast out of the top 150 economists in the U.S. He's also flexed his creative muscle as a lead producer and managing partner of the Broadway musical Rock of Ages. The, the list of accolades and experience goes on and on. But I think that sets the stage for why we want you to talk to us today, Barry, and uh, why you are such an important commentator and expert as we talk through and work through this this coronavirus crisis and how it's impacting the the housing economy thanks so much man it's been uh it's been like uh, trying to walk through some some uh treacherous times because you know the first thing that was most acute was the the fed's misunderstanding and this a lot of this just is fixable stuff that it comes with the government's desire to do something in an urgent manner to help it's good intentions however with anything you always have to balance urgency with thoughtfulness we've had the 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 urgency part and good intentions but the thoughtfulness wasn't there and and the first example was when the fed was purchasing mortgage-backed securities in an in in an, an amount that was overwhelming the marketplace they kept on purchasing them in an effort to reduce interest rates and get us through this time. But what they failed to see was that you couldn't bring interest rates down any further due to capacity issues, especially with stay at home, making us less efficient. 
and their appetite for mortgage bonds in an effort to do good caused mortgage bond prices to move by 650 basis points in a very short period of time, which caused lenders who have to hedge their pipeline to protect from rates going up. When rates go down, there's a nasty side to that because your hedging portfolio starts to lose a tremendous amount of money. It's offset eventually when loans close, but then you have a timing issue. The Fed didn't understand that. And uh, you know, I was able to put together something that got in front of them that once they saw it, they instantly responded and reacted. And as you can see from the time that you know, we got that in their hands, we have been in a very stable environment. And that quite honestly saved many lenders who told me, Barry, I can't last another week like this uh, because their cash was all but depleted. So it came just in the nick of time. So as we exited that trauma and said, we're okay, in comes the forbearance issue which has a myriad of problems. And, and many of us by now are somewhat well-versed in this. And it includes what happens to first payments being defaulted upon, uh, which makes the loan unsaleable. That's a big problem. The flood of individuals wanting to do forbearance without having them have the just common sense requirement of proving hardship, similar to 2008. And Clayton, the other thing that has occurred here is that the sheer overwhelming amounts of forbearances present another problem in that, as many of us already know, the payments have to be advanced from the servicer to the investor. And there's different degrees depending on the type of loan as to the extent of those payments that have to be advanced, including taxes and insurance. So Barry, that's a, that's a perfect set, that sets the stage perfectly for how I wanna structure this conversation. And I think highlights the complexity of the challenge and how many different parties and characters are involved. So in a recent conversation that I listened to with, that you had with Christine Beckwith and Jason Frazier on the Mortgage X podcast, you said that even Stephen King could not have scripted this. And I thought that was a, a really entertaining and accurate quote about the challenge that our market is facing right now. And that kind of inspired how I, how I wanna structure this conversation. So on that quote, I think we need to build out this challenge that we're facing in the housing economy like a narrative and hit on the five key components that every great story has. So who are the characters? What's the setting? What's the plot? The conflict? And, and, then, and then we'll get to the resolution as we know this is a, a, de a developing story. Yeah, it is, a, it is a really diabolical plot. You know, there's an old saying about the stock markets saying it will inflict the most pain on the most people at the worst time. And there's another old saying about the mortgage business, which says you don't go out of business because it's slow. You go out of business because you run out of cash. And it happens at times like this. Remember the Great Recession and the Aplodometer, that was because companies literally ran out of cash. Yep. And the reason you run out of cash is because things like we see here with margin calls, like we talked about, you also run out of cash because there are capital requirements. And as your servicing values decline, if you finance those, you get margin calls on that and servicing values because now with high unemployment, people may be not uh, paying because of forbearance. There are a few bids on servicing. We've saw, seen the non-QM market dry up. We've seen Jumbo now come under duress. and there's no bids on servicing for Gini transactions because you know, VA shouldn't be lumped into it, but it is, unfortunately. However, if you look at FHA loans, I'm sure these are good people and good borrowers, but they tend to have higher ratios. They tend to have less reserves. They tend to be um, in a position where their credit might be a bit more compromised 
And I'm sure these people all have good intentions, but the threshold for any kind of turbulence is much less, meaning that they're much more likely to miss payments or have difficulties if any kind of duress. In fact, Clayton, here's an interesting statistic that I was quoting before all this stuff, when Corona was still a beer. Um, we <laughs> were, were thinking about this and saying, you know, it's crazy, but 32% of people who have a job would have to borrow money if they had an unexpected expense of just over $400. Just think about that and think about the sensitivity of paycheck to paycheck uh, that people are living. And now you throw in this fact that, you know, your businesses are slower, you've potentially lost your job, and it, it creates a huge issue for people being able to pay. So some of the characters that you mentioned right now, I think the central character is the FHFA and, and Mark Calabria, because he's been kind of in focus here. And there was a very interesting article that you may have seen from Chris Whalen. I know Chris, he's a good guy. I've had many dinners with him. He's a smart guy. But he was pretty he was pretty brutal on Mark Calabria. And you know, you can certainly see some justification there saying that he needs to be removed immediately. Because let's remember, Mark Calabria said, hey, we're in the honor system and we'll see how it goes. Completely insensitive to how dire the situation currently is with mortgage-backed security, I'm sorry, with, with mortgage bankers and servicing. So, you know, to just flesh that out a little bit. Calabria by saying, you know, we're on the honor system. This is referring to the fact that you do not have to prove hardship. I think that forbearance, which means that payments are not forgiven, but they can be postponed. And by the way, that was terrible messaging also without explaining that. You know, you know Clayton, most people can't spell forbearance. I mean, forget about understanding it, right? So I still get autocorrect on it every single time. Yeah, yes, exactly. I'm guilty too. So, um, so when we when we think about that, there's been a terrible job of messaging it. The fact that you are saying that you don't have to prove anything other than an affirmation saying I've been affected by COVID nineteen that type of broad definition just lends itself to abuse. And in fact, you claim we've both seen this. Real estate agents are treating it like a furniture sale, where um, you know you'd say no payments for the first six months. They're putting on social media, buy a home today with me, there's no payments for the first year. And they believe that it's without consequence because according to Calabria and others, they've just put out some of the points on it saying, hey, you're not gonna be charged interest. Perhaps, presumably, they think that you won't have be dinged on your credit. That's still up for somewhat of debate. But even if let's just say that we're good, they fail to see some of the unknown and unintended consequences, which can be rather significant. Okay, so we have the FHFA and their leader, Mark Calabria. Uh, we talked a little bit about real estate agents. We have the homeowner, who's clearly an important player in this story. Um, what about the, the mortgage banks, the depository banks, the servicers? How do they come into this into the story that we're going to build on? So let's talk about them. But just one thing I would almost say, because you did say the borrower is an important player, I would almost say that you'd have to call them the innocent unknowing victim. Okay, the victim. what we're about to talk about, Clayton, is how the borrower, you know, you remember uh, Ronald Reagan, I think, had this quote that says, what are some of the most dangerous words? You know, hello, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, yeah. right? So uh, that is truly a very dangerous statement here. And that homeowner or borrower really is probably more accurate because some people do own a home without a mortgage. A person with a mortgage that is looking for forbearance, um, certainly, if, if, you, if you've lost your job and you can't make your payment. You know what, forbearance is really a good thing, Clayton, because 
that means less inventory on the market. That means less pressure. That means you can, so I agree with it a hundred percent. I think in theory, it's great. But what Calabria did that was so awful was open it up to everybody for abuse. Instead of for just those who need it, he hurts those most in need because you know it's going to be abused by those who think it's a free ride. But the victim becomes those people who think it's a free ride, who are gonna wake up one day without the knowledge and say, oh my God, I had no idea how expensive that really was. There is not a free ride. And I'm not just talking about the potential credit issues, I'm talking about real dollars and cents that they can get hurt. With regards to the services, you asked that question, some of those other players, you know, the services are trying to navigate through this as, as, as best as they can because you know, they're also victimized by this too. The, the services didn't create this virus. The services aren't in a position where they were irresponsible in any way, shape, or form. And they're trying to scramble now. They've got all these calls at their own dime. They have to hire more people to handle a problem that's going to cost them money. I mean, just think about the tough position that they're in. So they've been unfairly victimized as well. Um, you know, banks are in the same position, but banks have a little bit easier time because their ability to borrow and get through this with bridging is easier than an independent mortgage banker that mm -hmm. represents almost 60% of the transactions. You start to take those out of the equation, it's, it's going to be a hardship for every homeowner out there uh, and values of homes will drop. So. You know, th there's a lot at stake that people don't fully comprehend. Everybody just looks at, oh, free mortgage payment. It is far from a free mortgage payment, especially when we start to look at some of the real nasty, unforeseen and unintended consequences. And okay, so, and then potentially the, the final two main characters, um, what about our other DC constituents, the Fed, Treasury, Congress? Um, what, what, how, how are they coming into this story or, or will they come into this story? So I can only tell you what I've been hearing anecdotally, and it appears that the Fed, from some of the former Fed members that I've talked about, and through friends of mine who speak to current Fed members, seems to be that the Fed would like to help here. But the Treasury really has the, the say in this, and at least presently, it does not appear that our Treasury Secretary wants to come to the aid of the independent mortgage banker and really to the entire housing market. Uh, again, perhaps it is just innocently misunderstood. I'd like to think that. Uh, that's certainly what was the case with the Fed. If we use that as a precedent, you, know, you have to really commend the Fed because the Fed, I'm not saying they're not intelligent, they're clearly intelligent people, they clearly understand much of this, but the internal plumbing of some of these things isn't just something that the Fed would know about. So therefore, once they learned, the Fed acted, they got my, my, my article, they responded, and the market was good for that. But this is an issue for the FHFA and the Treasury. And unlike what we saw in the Fed, at least initially, the, they were, which were very responsive, they're not being responsive right now. They are turning a blind eye or giving a cold shoulder, whatever the metaphor you'd like to use. And I don't think they truly understand the consequences to the independent mortgage banker, to the real estate industry, to home ownership. Uh, at its very core, and the very people that they are trying to help will ultimately become victims simply because they don't understand the plumbing and the com complexity of how this works. And when I explain this to you here, it's something even that just about every single person, no one in the mortgage industry has figured this out yet, but we're about to talk about is something that is, is kind of shocking and revealing to the mortgage industry as well. 
Okay, so the, the, the Fed is, as you mentioned in the, the article you referenced, mortgage crisis and Fed unintended consequences. That is the, the unintended consequence, their action and how it's impacted these other, these other characters we're gonna walk through. Okay, so let's move into setting. So we know this is a global pandemic, um, but we're really focused on the, the US housing and housing finance market. So kind of as the story started, like coming, kicking off 2020, what, what, did the, what did the real estate market look like? Were we feeling strong? Were we feeling weak? Like how, how did you feel about the, the market coming into this year um, before March? Every single metric was pointing to a great housing market. And look, you know, we've, we've called it. I mean, we've got two crystal ball awards. The only one person who won it twice to, to kind of back that up that we, we called this correctly. But, you know, we have been very, very, very bullish on housing for the last eight years, and most people weren't. Uh, we got it right because of all the metrics that we look at are very detailed. We don't look at things anecdotally. We look at it in, in deep detail. And let me just give you some of the metrics we look at. The biggest one's always going to be demographics. And from a demographic standpoint, there are simply more households being formed than there is inventory. So you look at inventory, which is at a 40-year low. You look at households being formed, and this is reflective of birth rates from the 1980s, mid to late 1980s, results in the age group of a first-time home buyer today. And those birth rates back then continue to accelerate, and they will, which results in, over the next six years, you'll see an influx of first-time home buyers each and every year looking like a staircase greater than the previous year. So just sheer demand in household formations will continue to rise at a time where construction is certainly not keeping up. Inventory levels, as I mentioned, at their lowest levels in 40 years. Population is growing and greater. So just if you looked at your economics 101 class and said from a supply and demand standpoint, you know, we, we know that, that that's a positive to support pricing going up. We know that affordability has been rising, incomes going up, and we know that there is interest rates at extremely beneficial levels. Now we see interest rates remaining low, very low, uh, but the income portion for a period of time will be challenged. I think until we get a vaccine, which perhaps end of this year might be possible. I've been speaking with people from the Cleveland Clinic that's saying that that is an, a very real potential. You know, once you get a vaccine, you'll feel good about going out and things will be yeah. a lot more like normal with some, some potential changes. Uh, and that's when the economy will get back to where it was. So this is an interim lull. I view this as an opportunity. There's a couple of other quick metrics to kind of just go over with you. And that is the price to rent ratio. Something that people don't typically look at, but it's a very important metric that we view. And the price to rent ratio currently is 17. Meaning if you took the annualized rent and multiplied it 17 times, that's typically what you see home values at. If you look at the 40-year average, it's 16.5. So we're right there in a fair-valued home market. If you take a look at times when we got in trouble, when things are overvalued, that metric was 24 times. So we know Is that back this. in like 08, that when it went up Bingo. to 24? You're exactly right, Clayton. Okay. Bingo. Nailed it. Um, late 07, early 08. All right. Um, then if you take a look at another metric, which is price of the home compared to how much it would cost to replace the home. Well, you know, a portion of it is land, of course, so that doesn't go into construction replacement costs. So if you looked at strict replacement cost of a home, currently it's 1.59 times. So a home, home value is 1.59 times the cost to replace it. The 40-year average is 1.58. So once again, we're at a very fair value. We got above two times when pricing was stretched and we were in bubble periods. So anywhere you look, the housing market is strong. Sales at a 13-year high. 
uh, appreciation forecasts rising, accelerating. Uh, again, every metric you look at was great. So to answer your question in a very long way, but in based upon fact and not just you know thoughts, the factual evidence really strongly suggests that the housing market was going to roar for a long time and continue to be great. This lull should be viewed as an opportunity to finally buy that home because just a short month ago, you went shopping for a home, you got outbid by three other people, you know, you had to up your offers, you couldn't get any terms, the seller was king. Now there's a chance for you to the extent you can, I don't want to be insensitive, purchase a home, get a great deal. And because people typically live in home for 10 years, you look back and say, man, that was a great time to buy. You know, these periods of chaos do oftentimes present opportunities to look at. Uh, and those that are very wise view these instead of getting blinded or frozen as, well, let me look past this as to what does the world look like, not just a month from now, but 10 years from now when I'm ready to move out of the home. And this is going to be a great opportunity. I, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but we actually have an offer in on the house right now. So I'm happy to hear you. Uh... <laughs> you're, you're very wise. You're very, it doesn't surprise me. You're very wise. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please listen to this brief word from our sponsor. During these challenging times, Quicken Loans Mortgage Services is committed to the health and well-being of its partners, its partners' clients, and its communities. Even though things are changing rapidly, you can count on the QLMS commitment to speed, certainty, and care. QLMS is now approving new partners within 24 hours. That means you can be up and running quickly and be able to help your clients. Visit qlmortgageservices.com to get started. Now, more than ever, QLMS is stronger together. Thanks for listening to The Brief Message. And now back to the fifth episode of season three of the Housing News Podcast. So, so Barry, if I'm, if I'm going to decipher that to set the setting here, it sounds like if there's three main drivers of a healthy housing economy, and, and that's demand, um, interest rates or access to finance, and then demographics or, or employment, um, employment is the that's that's what's getting hit on the head right now that's the one variable that doesn't still look favorable you're 100 percent right but the potential good news is that this issue with employment is going to start to see some relief it's true that we were at you know three and a half percent unemployment which is extraordinarily low um, so there would be some tolerance you know to maybe go to four and a half percent or so that was the most recent jobs number, but it's going to go up from there. Some of the estimates are in the 20% unemployment range. And contextually, 10.8% was the Great Recession. Between 23 and 25% was the Great Depression. So the, those types of unemployment numbers are scary. The good news, if we can derive some good news from it, is that this was a self-imposed shutdown because of a health issue. So removing the health issue, and there's lots of reasons to believe that, A, because of seasonality, it starts to recover you know, during the month of April just because of the energy of the sun. We see this with, 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 with other, uh, other viruses, uh, that we can start to see a benefit. There are also many drugs out there. You know, hydroxychloroquine and, and azithromycin have been highly touted, but there are others as well. I believe there's currently 40 potential treatments. So there will be a therapeutic response. But ultimately, the fix for this, the fix for everything is a vaccine, because a vaccine eradicates it, like measles, like polio. And some people will say, well, you have a flu vaccine. How come we didn't eradicate it? That's because there's 330 million people in the US, but only 110 million got the flu vaccine last year. So if everybody got it, 
you'd eradicate it and you'd stop mutation of this. So because people are hesitant, you can't force them to get the vaccine, flu still exists and it's got a low mortality rate of 0.15%. Now, when you take a look at some of the things that people have been talking about with COVID, they are claiming three or 4%. We don't believe that because there's probably 10 times the amount of people who have the disease or have this virus than are reported cases. In the United Testing. States, a better, they do a better job than any place, yeah. and that's why, that's why we appear to have more cases than other places. We don't. We just report more because, A, we're honest, unlike some other governments, like the Chinese government that lies about pretty much everything. Um, but we, we tell the story, and we also do a better job of testing. And as we, as we see the mortality rate of that, according to the Cleveland Clinic, they believe that that mortality rate is closer to 0.4 and not 4%. So one-tenth of what was anticipated. Not that that's a good thing to have anybody die, but it is not the, you know, the, the crazy, crazy amount of, uh, of mortality that we are, we're fearful of. So if you get, a, you get a vaccine, I'm gonna feel good about giving you a hug again, Clayton. You know, so, <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're we can, all gonna if be- If we can get on a plane, if I can come up to Jersey yeah. and, and see you. But <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and listen, we're human. We, we crave that, we want that. This is something that we, we, we love that. That's why we gather, you know? Um, so it's built into who we are as a species. Uh, we, we want to be with others for the most part. So therefore, you know, I think we'll have a deep desire to want to do this. You know, the interesting aspects of it is that eventually you have demand spike and maybe supply doesn't quite meet that. So you could have a potential of, of a price spike a little bit yep. here in certain industries, you know? So, so that's, that's really good for setting. So, so we talked about the, the setting of the housing market and real estate market. And we also did the setting for coronavirus and this pandemic and how we're dealing with it within the U.S. and, and across the globe. So I, I want to move forward into, into plot. And this is, this is the, real, the real meat here. And, and you and Dan did an excellent job setting the stage for this story with the blog post we referenced, uh, the mortgage crisis and Fed's unintended, unintended consequences. And I want to and, and I know this can be a, I know this can be a long conversation, but I want to, I want to do like kind of the, the, the quick overview of how the mortgage market works. I think that is an extremely in, important knowledge to share across the industry. And as, as I've heard you give this description and I've, and I've read your writing, I know this is not understood across all job categories and professional categories within the, the housing industry. So can you start setting the stage for the plot with how the market works? Yes. So the good news here is we'll give you we'll give you the spoiler alert is that this was a we, we were able to fix this and the Fed heard us. And so that was good. Uh, but the issue derived from the fact that the Fed just didn't understand the plumbing and the plumbing works like this. When someone wants a mortgage rate locked in with a lender, um, there isn't like a, a magical sprinkling of fairy dust on it that says, OK, now it's locked. That loan is not indeed locked. That loan is just promised to be locked. It only officially gets locked in once that loan is sold to another investor and it's off of that uh, an initial lender's hands. Nobody holds a mortgage. It's sold in the secondary market. And yeah. the people that own all these mortgages out there are all of us that are listening together. If you look in your 401ks, your IRAs, your mutual funds, your insurance plans, it's loaded with mortgage-backed securities. So therefore, we ultimately accept the risk of interest rate fluctuation. But when we take a look at, at it from the perspective of promising that customer an interest rate of 4%, let's say, the lender who promised you that will now have that liability of interest rates worsening or the benefit of interest rates getting better until time of closing. 
because they do not want to be in a position of risk and gamble, they mitigate that risk by doing something which is called hedging. How do you hedge? Well, if interest rates were to go up, that means the price of the mortgage bond is getting worse or going down. At time of closing, what the lender would have to do is get a worse price, so they have to pay the difference in order to keep their promise to you of 4%, so it costs them a lot more money. Because they don't want to lose that money, what they'll do is they will take a counterbalancing position, which is a short position, meaning they're selling it today and buying it back in the future. So that if the price gets worse in the future, well, what they sold today is let's say it's a price of 100, in the future it goes to 96 or 97. What they'll do is they'll get back buying it at 96, they'll make a profit of $3 or 97, $4 or $3, whatever it is. That profit is used to pay for the rate lock that they now have to bring down to the rate that you were promised. Beautiful, works great. And it works very similarly if interest rates improve. So when interest rates improve, the buyer's at 4%, but now the lender will actually get an improved price for that, they're gonna make more money. Except that that hedge position to prevent them, to protect them in case rates went the other way, that hedge position starts losing money. So again, they're selling it at 100, now they've gotta buy it back at 102, so they lost $2 there. That loss of $2 is offset by the gain in the market, they offset each other, they pair off, and everything's great. That was all fine, except that when the Fed steps in with the bazooka and starts causing price volatility in such a dramatic way, that the losses on the hedged position, so at the time it's an unrealized loss, should be offset perfectly by the unrealized gain in the market, but the broker-dealer who gives you this hedged position, you know, these are all your, your Wall Street firms, they say, excuse me, uh, you're too upside down on this, and I'm not going to risk this, I want my money and I want it now. And the lender says, hold on a second, look at all this money I'm gonna make on paper to offset this loss. Broker-dealer says, sorry, I'm not interested in if or when you're going to close that loan. You've exceeded my comfort zone of limit. You have to pay me my money. You have to pay it to me right now. And this was what was causing all the pain because lenders were extending tens of millions of dollars. I was hearing numbers, 50 million, 40 million, 30, you know, and in multiple tranches so that their cash, which was so strong, started to get to scary levels that threatened solvency. And, and when, we, when we talk about that part of the plot, is this tying out, when we tie it back to our characters, is this impacting the independent mortgage banks? Is it also impacted depositories or is that a different risk? Depositories on- have greater ability to withstand this because they could borrow more money easily. So, so they, they have that. But the independent mortgage banker, which is in a great strong cash position, now is running through cash at an alarming rate with now saying, uh, this cannot continue for another week. Otherwise... You know, many of them would have not been able to make it to the end of the week. I mean, we're talking about days, just days. So thank God the Fed responded to us and, and acted in the way they did um, because it literally saved a lot of independent mortgage bankers out there. Now, we've and done the, some news coverage on this, but what, what was the Fed's response? What, how, did, how did they respond? What did they change? So what the Fed did was they immediately started buying about half of what was scheduled. So they had purchased... $183 billion, an insane amount uh, for the week of the 23rd of March. And on the week that began on the 30th of March, they had scheduled to buy an incredible amount of $250 billion. They reduced that by more than half, which 
was okay because there was supply coming to the market from new issuances, but there also was some liquidations. Remember the stock market had taken a big hit. There was margin calls on the stock market. They liquidated bond holdings, things like that. So there was a lot of supply coming to the market and what the Fed does says, okay, we're still gonna buy, but now we're gonna buy it with an understanding that we wanna maintain stability in price. We don't wanna drive prices up 650 basis points because that's gonna put the mortgage and housing industry in jeopardy. They got it very quickly. You know, they're smart. I've met JP. He's very, very smart. Were all of the characters in this story in support of that decision to bring stability or was there anybody negatively impacted by that reduced rate of buying? No, everybody wanted that because it was just a common sense. It was a common sense theme because the Fed didn't have to go over and above in their purchases. And that's not the Fed's job really to do that. The Fed should really be providing a stable environment. Uh, now, sometimes if they wanted to do something in the nature of quantitative easing to bring rates down, the reason they do that is because they take rates to zero. That's about as low as you can go, zero. They could go negative, but we've learned from Japan, we've learned from Europe that negative central bank interest rates destroys the banking system. So they put a pause there, but now they said, what can we do to incent people to create you know, more uh, borrowing to stimulate the economy? What is it that we could do? So we will do something that equates to a Fed cut, a quantitative ease, hence the name QE or quantitative yep. easing, so that's quantifiably the same thing, which is buy mortgage bonds, bringing long-term rates down. The problem was, was that they didn't understand. They kept doing this. Why weren't the customers seeing lower rates? It was because the industry was at capacity. You know, yep. if you go, if you remember when, when the AirPods came out from Apple, people were lined up around the block. It was taking you a month or two months to get it. Apple's not going to say I'm putting it on sale for 20, but you know, for 20% off. Apple's going to keep in price, price, maintain prices. And it wasn't the mortgage bankers were greedy. It was just how else are you going to slow down the influx? Yeah, no, it's an excellent tool to use at the time. So, so we, the Fed has made some moves to reduce pressure on independent mortgage bankers, but we still have this servicer dilemma and servicers are, are still under an immense amount of pressure. Can you give us some background on how that plot has built in the, the, the major risks or, or pressure points that are on servicers right now? So servicers have a, um, have, have a lot of fronts that they're battling because their servicing values have been cut, which hurts your net worth. And that hurts your ability to borrow. It hurts your ability to have warehouse capabilities at a very high level. So there's a lot of fronts that they're battling. Uh, but the big one right now is the fact of forbearance. And, and the forbearance issue, this is the main one that we're struggling with right now. This is, the, this is the central focus of what we all should be looking at because forbearance is it initially was mistaken with forgiveness. And now hopefully people understand that it is not something that's forgiven. And also, as I mentioned, it's being abused because people are saying, okay, I know I have to pay it back, but in essence, it's an interest-free loan for if I'm going to be in the home for 10 years, why wouldn't I do it? What have I got to lose? And people don't realize what they have to lose, but they have a lot to lose. And I'd like to just explain what it is they have to lose, if that's okay with you, Clayton. Uh, Please. This is a really, really important point for us to all get out there. And it's this. Not one person, aside from you know, what we're about to talk to you guys about, has contemplated the downside of, again, you have to get into the plumbing, of the, the way the amortization schedule works. Amortization on a loan, if you look at any amortization schedule, as you go down the schedule, your payment stays fixed, right, if it's a fixed rate loan. But the allocation portion of interest and principal changes every single month. As you get further down, there is a greater allocation towards principal and less towards interest every single month, which is why you pay off very little initially, and then it builds and builds, and you start to get a snowball effect, and you begin to pay a lot more principal. 
The thing of it is, is that what no one has contemplated as of yet is that if you chose not to do forbearance, and if you fall into the category, according to the National Association of Realtors, of being in your home for 10 years, let's just use that example, a $300,000 loan with 10 years of amortization at 4%, you would have a remaining principal balance. And Clayton, I'm gonna give it to you so I don't misspeak here. So I would like to give you an exact number. And that remaining principal balance after a 10 year period is going to be, in this particular example that we used of a $300,000 loan at 4% is a remaining balance of $236,000 for round number's sake. But if you chose forbearance, now whatever you did forbearance, your interest, your taxes, your insurance, that has to be paid back at the end as well. So you know you have to pay it back. But 10 years later on the calendar is not 10 years on the mortgage amortization. So while you might be selling it 10 years later as far as your calendar goes, you've only paid your mortgage for nine years. So you're only in year nine of the amortization schedule. So your balance is about 244,000 instead of 236,000. So you're talking like a, I mean, if I, by, on round numbers, an $8,000 expense to, yeah. to the borrower for opting into a forbearance program. And this is the deadly part about it. This is why we use the term victim because currently that borrower who says forbearance and again, by the way, if, if it comes down to, you know, you need this, you're going to lose your home. Otherwise, it's a great idea, okay? That $8,000 is a small cost to protect the, the, your home and your ownership, small cost. But for those people who truly have the money sitting in their checking account, they're fine, they're working, they're okay, they're, they're going to be fine. They've got a big savings account, you know, money for a rainy day. This is kind of rainy day where they could use that. And they're saying, no, this is free money. I'm being told by the realtor, I'm being told by whomever, this is, there's no downside. There is a downside. And if you know to save, you know, to postpone paying $15,000 is gonna cost me $8,000, bet you a lot of people would say, don't do that. A lot of financial advisors would say, don't do that. And even a lot of realtors, if they really understood it, would say, no, don't do that. And just that in and of itself would then potentially, that education would potentially save the mortgage and housing industry from these abuses then causing an untenable situation that people are trying to, to overcome right now. You know, this, the, the real irony and the sin of this is that first of all, it's well-intended and it's gonna have nasty consequences. But the real irony of this whole story is that if people just knew, they wouldn't do it. Yep. I mean, that's the whole thing. If they just knew, and that's why it's up to all of us, that's why you see us working so hard here at MBS Highway, to create, first of all, to discover, and then thanks to people like you guys, to be able to get this out there so individuals can understand it and the consumer can learn. So what we've done, Clayton, is we've, we've actually created a calculator that makes this easy, and we're creating an HTML version, and we want to give it out to the industry. We're not asking for anything for it. We just want to give it out to them so that at the point of interface between the borrower and the servicer, the borrower can at least learn. Similar to a disclosure when you take out a mortgage, here's what I'm borrowing, but this is what the cost is over 30 years. Let's also show them if you choose forbearance, this is what the cost is that you might not have contemplated. That's, that's 
That's really valuable. That's, that's going to be a cool tool. And it, and it also starts to highlight the interconnectedness of all of the characters that we're talking about here and uh, how the, the, you put them in a victim category, but the servicers and the, the borrowers have this unique relationship where, where information and value is exchanged. Um, the lender is impacted by the decisions of the, the borrower and, and the servicer. And, and that brings us to a few of the other topics in, in the plot that I think are developing right now. So there's been a lot of talk about verification of employment and VOEs with a spike in, in unemployment claims. Um, lenders are concerned about buybacks. Uh, there, there's new information and guidance out there from, from large aggregators on if they will um, buy loans if a, or will not buy loans if a uh, borrower has declared forbearance. Uh, can you give us a little bit of insight there? And then Barry, we're going to have to come back to the rest of the plot and the, con and the conflict in, in part two of, of this developing story. But I want to hit on that VOE and, and buyback risk, um, and then we'll, 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 we'll wrap it for the day and come back. Great, and thank you. And, and you're always terrific, man. And, and I'd love to do a part two or anything that, that can be of help. But you dialed it in and nailed it again in that there are landmines with closing alone. It's almost like a game of Russian roulette. Because if you close that loan and the borrower goes into forbearance, maybe it's because they just don't know or they're you know, thinking they're gaming the system or something their realtor told them to do, but they really can make the payments. Well, the big issue with that is that that loan now is not saleable or if it had been sold, it gets pushed back and they have to repurchase it. So what do you do if you have to repurchase it? I mean, it's not like you take it, you put it in your pocket. It's no that goes, you have to, that loan's got to sit on your warehouse line in your, and the warehouse line acts as a line of credit. Now, a warehouse line, just to make it simple, is when you have a closing, that money is sent, the check is sent to the closing table, you use your line of credit to fund the loan, then what has to happen is, you know, the signature is just wet on there, they have to bring it back, make sure everything's signed, everything looks like it's in order, all the documents are there, and then they will then sell it to the investor, the investor gives them a check and it replenishes their credit line. Typically speaking, let's just use simple numbers. You have a million dollar credit line and you could do it every two weeks by selling and replenishing it. You could probably close $2 million of loans. If it's a billion dollar credit line, you can close 2 billion. You get the math here. But the thing of it is, if you have to buy back loans and you put yourself at risk and they're sitting on your warehouse line, that inhibits your ability double whatever you purchase. So if you got to buy back a $100,000 loan, it eliminates $200,000 of your ability to fund, which is not only money that you need to run your company and be profitable and stay in business at this critical time, but it also inhibits borrowers from being able to close in a timely manner or get funding and, and causes delays. And then you have a chain reaction if it's a purchase where a seller is waiting for that. So it gets messy. And the best, the, the, the best and worst thing about this is you could fix this without one penny of taxpayer dollar. You could preserve the housing industry. You could preserve the vital functions of the mortgage industry. You could keep a low-rate environment, and you could better protect and educate the consumer from falling into this huge pitfall and expense simply with A, explaining it better, and B, making this for what it was intended. Give it to just those who are affected by loss of job. Require some verification there. And simply by doing that, Clayton, you then can make all of you the hero in the story. And that's what we need to do. So Barry, we're going to keep the listeners on the, the edge of their seats and, uh, and continue this at a later date. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Clayton. Appreciate everything you guys do. 
one more thank you to our sponsors, Quicken Loans, Mortgage Services, and ArchMI. And please don't forget to rate the show and leave us feedback on iTunes. We'll see you next week.